Here's our next Evening Under Lamplight podcast with Robert Louis Abrahamson up on the sphere of Jupiter in Canto 19 of Dante's Paradiso. At the end of the last canto, Dante had been addressing the sphere of Jupiter and its virtue of justice. And the souls who had formed the shape of an eagle and then castigated the people on earth, principally the greedy churchmen again, for their unjust ways. The new canto opens just after Dante finishes speaking, with that eagle seeming to spread its wings, all those souls forming the shape glowing with joy, each one like a gleaming ruby. What happens next is something Dante knows is so unusual, so odd, that no one has ever written about it, or even dreamed of such a thing. We have to be open to the wonder of such a thing as we read. The image might seem a little grotesque, or even to our minds, a, a little comic, but if we pay attention to the details of what Dante tells us, we will be able, I think, to capture the right feeling here. What happens is that the eagle speaks from out of its beak. It, it's not clear whether the beak opens as it speaks, but let's not worry about that. The really remarkable thing to note here is this double vision of the many different ruby-glowing souls gathered there, and yet the one single action and voice. Is this a single entity speaking, or all of these individuals speaking? Dante makes a point of saying that when the eagle speaks, it uses io and mio, I and mine, instead of noi and nostro, we and our. It's an enactment of that theme we've been following all along, that variety in unity, diverse units conjoined into one larger unit, yet not losing their individuality in it. Here's what the eagle says. Because I was just and merciful, I have been raised up into that glorious salvation that you cannot attain just by desiring to attain it. In other words, you're not saved just by wanting to be saved. You, you have to turn that desire into practical actions, and you have to open yourself up to the divine working within you. I bequeathed back on earth, the eagle continues, enough remembrances of my good works that even those people who care nothing for doing good works nevertheless pay homage to what I did. When the eagle says I, we are to understand that each of those lights forming the shape are saying that they were just rulers on earth. Not just rulers, but rulers who were just. <laughs> so in this way, we have identified in general what kind of souls are representing themselves here on Jupiter. And Dante adds another image to reinforce this many-in-one paradox. They're like a coal fire, comprised of many individual lumps of coal, but projecting out one unified wave of heat. After all, we don't sit in front of a coal fire, if we do, noticing the heat coming from particular bits of coal, do we? Yet we know that this is what that burning comes from. Not one flame or one source of flame, but many different burning pieces, yet the effect is one unified wave. Dante speaks to the eagle now. In, in speaking, he, he uses boy, you plural, rather than the singular that the eagle had used about itself. He begins with yet another image. You undying flowers of eternal joy, your individual scents forming one single overriding fragrance. 
please satisfy this great hunger I have had with me for a long time, and which no one on earth has been able to satisfy. I know that although the source of divine justice is reflected higher up, nevertheless it shines clearly through you here. You know how attentively I am prepared to hear what you have to say, and you know just what that doubt is that I have been hungering for so long. You, you see, there's no fuss now about, I know that you know what I want to know. N no fuss about, I know what you're thinking about, but you should speak about it anyway. No, it, it's as though what's on Dante's mind is too urgent to play those games. We've seen before the way these souls in heaven burn with greater love when they are asked to help Dante, and now, too, these souls burst into glad singing on hearing Dante's request. Unfortunately, that singing is so rarefied that Dante cannot capture its meaning. And then the eagle makes its reply, starting, as usual, from a point distant from the question it is about to answer. Not that at this point we yet know what that question is. The argument begins with a description of God's power, which is so vast compared to his limited and varied creatures that none of us created beings can attain to a full knowledge of him. After all, the greatest of all created beings, the archangel Lucifer, could not wait for a gradual unfolding of God's light, wanted that light and power right then, and rebelled. And, as we know, he fell to become Satan, the perverse, mindless monster at the center of hell. And so it follows that none of us, who are but single rays of light, can penetrate very far into the divine light. Well, it's like looking into the sea. Yes, near the shore, if the water is clear, we can perceive the bottom, but if we go farther out, we simply cannot see the bottom, but we know it's there. Or to put it another way, the only really clear light is that which comes down from above. All other lights, that is, I think, all other attempts to understand things, are shadowy or perverted by our human limitations. Now that explains the groundwork of the discussion, the nature of divine light, in this case specifically the nature of justice, that comes from God but that we can never fully understand. Now for Dante's specific question. Let's suppose there is someone born along the river Indus, that is, someone as far away as India, where there is no one around to tell him about Christ and no books to inform him either. But suppose that this man is a good man and performs every virtue, sinless in word and deed. Obviously he has not, he has not been baptized. He's never even heard of such a thing. Now when he dies, is his soul barred from heaven because he's not a Christian? Where is the justice in this? How can he be condemned if he's never believed what he never even knew about? We perhaps have been wondering about this sort of thing at least ever since we first met Virgil and learned he was placed in limbo because he'd never heard the gospel message. But having expressed Dante's question, the eagle now gives a blunt answer. Who are you to judge the fate of someone so far away, you with your limited vision? Yes, we could argue this problem one way or another, but there is scripture that gives an answer. 
don't you understand that whatever the divine will decides is always completely just, that divine will that is the source of justice itself? This was, as I said, a blunt answer, but then, like a nurturing mother stork flying over the chicks, who, well fed now, look up at her, but the eagle soars over Dante's head, singing that song or hymn that Dante could not comprehend, and then explains, see, just as you're unable to grasp my song, so mere mortals cannot grasp the divine judgments. Now there's more to come. The eagle explains that no one comes up here to heaven who does not believe in Christ, either before his crucifixion or afterwards. That is, people who, like the Hebrew patriarchs and prophets, believed in the coming redemption of God before Christ came to fulfill their hopes, or those who, after Christ's death, that is, in the Christian era, who have believed in him, these only are the people who get to heaven. That sounds very simple, but apparently it's not. For one thing, not everyone who cries out, Christ, Christ, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There are many who profess to be Christians, but who, in fact, live far from a Christ-like life. And there are even Ethiopians who have not known Christ, who will be closer to him at the end than these others. And this starts the eagle off on a long condemnation of unjust rulers from one end of Europe, that is, of Christendom, to the other. The Persians, outside the Christian dispensation, will be amazed to read the book showing these actions so opposed to the religion these rulers have nominally professed. It's a long passage, formally laid out with three tercets beginning li, there, three more beginning with vidrasi, the book will show, and three beginning a, and. The three words li, vidrasi, a, then become shortened to their first letter to give us the word l, v, or u, e, lue, meaning a pestilence. It's a rare moment when Dante plays with this kind of acrostic, adding greater emphasis to the rage expressed here by the just rulers against those who perverted the justice they had established on earth. And when that long tirade finishes, so does the canto, just like the last canto ending with a condemnation of the evil alive in the world. This canto primarily features the eagle's words, the many souls speaking as one being. First, the eagle identifies the souls here on Jupiter with a passing comment on those on Earth who ignore their just example. This introduces the two themes that will be developed in the canto, the salvation of the just and the condemnation of the unjust. Dante speaks just once, asking to have his urgent doubt clarified. The rest of the canto is the eagle's answer explaining the impossibility of any living person seeing deeply into the divine mind, then articulating Dante's question about the virtuous pagan's unjust damnation, only because he has not had a chance to learn about Christ. The answer comes swiftly, or rather not the answer, but a dismissal of the question, as well as, well, sort of presumptuous, almost similar to Lucifer's rebellion, if we think about it, presuming to judge God from our limited knowledge, or presuming to think we can understand his judgments. 
To offset our human limitations, we have the scriptural revelation, the avenue by which we can most clearly, at least in this instance, see the mind of God. No one comes to heaven except through believing in Christ. Raising the idea of believing in Christ leads to the long condemnation of the unjust rulers, who may have said they believed, but their actions belied that. If we cannot judge whether the divine will has saved a dead person, well, at least we can judge how living people are not following the divine will. Now, as we were saying last time, Jupiter is the planet of justice. And maybe before we go further, we should stop and consider what justice is all about. I'm not sure it's a word that is used much these days. People seem to talk more about rights than about justice, though there is the phrase social justice, which still has meaning. What about the adjectives just and unjust? How often do we hear an action called just or unjust? Not that often, as far as I can tell. So this moment of reading Dante can help us bring more life into these words, and perhaps also into this concept. The basis of justice is, I think we can say, the idea of equity. A fair treatment of everyone. A balance which fits in with Jupiter as the temperate sphere, as Dante described it in the last canto. Justice has to do with the act of judging, and a certain kind of judging. Maybe a negative definition will be helpful. Justice is not a biased view. It does not make a judgment based upon preconceptions, which is another word for prejudice. It weighs each case on its own merits and against the standards of justice set out in the laws. Of course, if the laws are themselves unjust, like, say, the laws about apartheid or segregation, then the laws have to be changed, but that's a whole different story. Dante seems to feel that the canon of Roman law, established by Justinian many centuries earlier, set the standard for justice. The problem lay not in the laws themselves, but the failure of people to administer them properly, or administer them at all. So, for Dante, the laws establish a universal standard of justice, applicable throughout the empire, always bearing in mind that for Dante that great concept of the empire was in ruins in his day. It's a universal standard that is to be administered at the level of each individual case that arises. All these various individuals united by one universal standard. Another example of that pattern of variety and unity. The pattern is enhanced in our canto by that curious image of the eagle Many souls with one voice, speaking as I, not we. Individual rulers surrendering themselves into the universal standard of justice, represented by the symbol of the Roman Empire. One of the advantages of recognizing a universal standard is that we can move away from the merely personal, which is often just subjective. We can see this in the use of words. Uh, what's the difference between saying something is unfair and saying it is unjust? Can you feel the difference between what each of these words evokes in us? Unfair. Unjust. Suppose an employee is sacked or fined for coming in late, 
even though she had told her boss that her husband was in hospital and she had the boss's permission to stop in and see her husband on the way to work, no problem if she comes in half an hour late. But the boss punishes her anyway, maybe because he has a prejudice against her ethnicity or he resents the way she gets on with her co-workers. It's unfair to treat me like that, she protests. But suppose she said instead, it is unjust to treat me like that. Can you feel how much weightier her protest is now? She's now appealing to a larger standard of justice, and it's a much more severe accusation. Maybe I'm just playing with words, but I hope there may be something in what I'm saying that will resonate with you. But suppose, to continue our example, suppose, before that unjust act of punishment, suppose one of the other employees hears that this woman has been allowed to come in late and then makes a fuss, saying that it is unjust to allow her this leeway. The regulations say that you must show up to work on time every day. It breaks the company's law to allow her to be late. That's an infringement of justice. Yes, this employee is right. The regulation, the law, has, to this extent, been broken. But this is why I think the Eagle announces that it, or, or rather the souls that comprise it, has been raised to heaven for being giusto e pio, just and merciful. Sometimes justice has to be tempered by mercy. And mercy always, if you'll forgive the word, always trumps justice. Yes, the boss had said, the regulations say you must come in at nine o'clock, but I can make an exception in your case because your husband's ill. That's an extenuating circumstance, which does not create an injustice. It raises the issue above justice to compassionate consideration. Giusto e pio. Maybe we see this in the canto in the way the eagle is quite severe in slapping down Dante's eagerness to know whether that virtuous Indian will be saved or damned, none of your business, but then it softens like a maternal stork and speaks a little more gently to Dante. Or let's go back to the Purgatorio, where, on the terrace of pride, we saw the picture of Trajan, ready to march off to war, with his army all ranked behind him, stopped by a widow who asks for justice because her son has been murdered. I'm really very busy right now, Trajan says. I'll take care of this when I get back from this campaign. But suppose you don't get back, the widow replies. Suppose this case never gets heard. Now, there's justice in Trajan's position that the cause of the whole army and the threat to the empire overrides the merely personal needs of this widow. But his mercy kicks in, and he halts to deal with the case. There is mercy overriding justice, making the justice more righteous. Now there's something else to notice, just after the eagle speaks about justo e pio. It adds, I left behind on earth examples of justice that even wicked people recognize as good, though they don't follow these examples. The memory of the good deeds of others who came before us can illustrate for us the way justice should work. And like a good image in a work of art, it can help us to see more clearly and move us in the right direction. Think of the way your Aunt Sally treated that beggar who came to her door when you were age five, spending the afternoon at her house. Her kind generosity was a just act, 
And maybe when you have come across beggars later in your life, that example from your childhood can arise and spur you to act justly to this other person in need. Justly or mercifully, if it comes to that. That doesn't explain, though, why these wicked people refuse to follow those good examples, even when they acknowledge that the examples are right. I'm just remarking on this. <laughs> now is not the time to go into the whole issue of why wicked people remain obstinately wicked. More important, maybe, is to examine ourselves to check how we respond to the good examples left for us, and also to see if we too can leave examples of just deeds for those who come after us. I think I've explained the eagle's argument sufficiently already, so I won't go into it further here except perhaps to emphasize the need to acknowledge our limitations. We had heard a similar point made by Aquinas at the end of Canto 13, warning us not to judge others too quickly, since we cannot see them through the eyes of God. Accepting our own limitations is to see ourselves as we are right now, placed on this isthmus of a middle state, as Alexander Pope put it, a being darkly wise and rudely great. That's not just being humble, it is being realistic. Like a just judge, we set aside preconceptions and biases, and we don't allow ourselves to be caught up in certainties when we know we don't know enough. Que sais-je was the motto of Montaigne, what do I know? And knowing that we don't know everything awakens in us a desire to learn more. And here we are in that pattern of desire and fulfillment, question and answer, delight to delight that we have seen on every sphere in heaven. It is as though knowing the certainties is, is not the most important thing here. Engaging in the relationship is what matters most, that heavenly pattern of the dance. It reminds me of the book of Job, where poor Job, feeling unjustly oppressed, persists in asking God why these terrible things are happening to him. He wants to know where the justice is in his case. God shows up finally, the voice in the whirlwind, and with much more force than that eagle, tells Job that it is impossible for him ever to understand the workings of God. Now my eyes can see you, Job says to God. Acknowledging his limitations, he can finally see God. He says he now repents in dust and ashes. Some people like to say that Job's repentance is his admission that he shouldn't have asked all those questions in the first place, shouldn't have questioned God, sorry I bothered thee, O Lord. He should have just piously accepted the loss of all his wealth and the death of all his children. That seems to me a heartless understanding. Take repentance in its original sense of turning around, taking a different perspective on things, and remember how much turning around there is here in heaven. God rewards Job in the end, a simple gesture on the part of the author of the book, to illustrate the living relationship between God and Job now. Job has realized that getting the answers to his questions about divine justice is not as important as being present to his desire to know and then pestering God, because in that pestering there arises a closer relationship, one that enables him actually to see God in his majesty. Who needs answers then? 
they become inconsequential. Well, maybe we've come a long way from Canto 19 of the Paradiso, but maybe not. We're back on the theme of relationship, and that's where it's at, after all. But we have to attend to another problematic part of the canto. Even though we human beings have limited understanding, the eagle says, we do have the scriptures to give us some revealed certainties. And Jesus in the scriptures tells us that no man cometh unto the Father but by me. So that seems to settle it. And Dante has stayed within the bounds of Orthodox Catholicism here. But Dante leaves room for us to think further. He seems to invite us to think further. What does it mean to believe in Christ? Which scripture are we talking about? Statius, after all, found his first hints about Christ in a text by Virgil. Does that perfectly just man on the banks of the Indus have access to any texts or any teachings that can lead him to Christ? Does it have to be the exact word Christ? Is Christ just a word you have to repeat? Or is Christ a way of life, as seen, for instance, in the just examples set by these souls now speaking as the eagle? After all, as that final part of the canto insists, just saying Christ, Christ, does not mean you are following Christ. You can be one of those pestilential rulers found from one end of Europe to the other. The Ethiopian, who does not know the word Christ, will find himself closer to God than those rulers. So what hope is there for that just man in India? Well, you know the answer. The answer is beyond your understanding. Just like worrying about the response of the readers of the Divine Comedy, as Kachagwira said at the end of Canto 17, you simply do not know enough to judge. Just get on with the job in front of you. Oh, this raises so many questions, especially for modern readers, but I think we've gone about as far as we can right now. There's more to come on this subject in the next canto, so let's withhold judgment and see what we learn then. See you there.